station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. I'm your host, Tim Wick, joined as always by my co-host, movie opera ghost, Melissa Kersher. Hello. <laughs> and movie opera uh, uh, patron, Jenny On. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and we are... Uh. We are here this week to watch uh, what we promised we were going to watch the last time we did the show, and now we're really going to do it. We're going to watch The Phantom of the Opera. So we must start out by having Jenna tell us everything she knows about The Phantom of the Opera. Andrew Lloyd Webber, except this isn't what that is, but that's everything I know about Phantom of the Opera. All right. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Also, well, this particular movie, um, yeah, not not the musical. Also, uh, not a romance. Um... (laughs) And, uh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, dear listeners, uh, I will confirm what Jenna said. We are not watching the musical version of The Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) Thank God. uh, Released in the 2000s somewhere, uh, starring Gerard Butler... Yeah, we are so not watching as the that. Phantom. <laughs> not it, watching. It that. is a it is a terrible movie. I can't recommend it. Um, <laughs> it I mean, it, I am. You, you'd think if you were making a musical of Phantom of the Opera and then filming it, you'd hire people who were singers. Yeah, but well, you uh, know, well, Les Mis. Uh, that wasn't good either. <laughs> yeah, they did hire yeah, people. Well, Les Mis, they did hire people who were singers. Just not everybody was a singer. Yeah, goddamn um, it, Russell Crowe. Ah, oh, Russell. <sighs> anyway, but um, I loved what he did acting-wise with that one. That's uh, yeah, we, that's a, that's a podcast for another time. <laughs> so we are watching the Phantom of the Opera. This is the 1929 silent version mm-hmm. of the Phantom of the Opera. This is, would be the the uh, what do we want to say? Uh, the classic. Uh, version the what the sort of the the Lon Chaney Senior version Lon Chaney Senior version yes um, and we'll get much you know after the break we'll uh, get much further into the niggling details of what happened between 1925 and 1929 on this particular movie because a lot happened so yeah this movie has a, a fascinating fascinating history to it mm-hmm. um, it also you know goes on it's a uh, one of the these classic monster films uh, that that goes on to inspire a lot. I mean, there are there are a ton of movies and stories that are based on this Phantom of the Opera story, which obviously mm-hmm. isn't original to the film, but I still think most of the Phantom of the Opera stories that come after have more to do with the film than the original story. Um, but. Uh, we will see uh, Lon Chaney, and that's that's really important. And, and and you know this, what I like about this movie, and you know a lot of the silent movies we've watched is uh, it, the version we did is the version we're watching. Is it tinted at all? Yes, it should be. Yeah. Yes. So there there is there is some actual color yeah. elements. Like windows. Yeah. <laughs> there were. Uh, three different color processes used on this movie, Ooh. and not all of that footage still exists. I mean, I'll get I'll get into the the history of what we're seeing later, but uh, yeah, there there are some fascinating things that happen with color photo- very early color photography. Um, um, also, I believe on this particular cut, um, it's one of the uh, examples where 
during the sound era, they actually laid in some sound over it. Um, yeah, that, there's all sorts of what? other stuff that happened with this print. So, oh my god, yeah, yeah it's there. They did all sorts of crazy stuff with this yeah. movie, mm-hmm. um, and uh, including you know, the sets. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, there's just all sorts of crazy stuff that goes into this movie. Yeah. Um, the Phantom of the Opera character, you know, I think, uh, like, famous monsters of film land, this is mm-hmm. one of those characters that shows up over and over again in that, oh, yeah. in that, uh, in that kind of concept of the classic film monsters. Well, yeah, and um, it, it was the earliest universal monster, at least, you know, as we... Because this was a Universal movie, and then they did Dracula and Frankenstein, and you know it was—it's all in that line of, yeah. of film history. So we are going to uh, just go off. We're going to watch the Phantom of the Opera, as I repeat, not the musical. I really want to sing right now. Do you see how much self-restraint I have? I'm not singing. But you're talking about it and that's almost as scary. Oh, um, oh no. You should hear me sing it. And we will, I will certainly I'm, we'll certainly spend a little time on the Phantom of the Opera musical after the break. Oh, I got things to say about that. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Is this really just an excuse to bitch about the, uh, no, the no, 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 it's not. No, it's a fine, fine film and we're going to go watch that fine film and not the musical which I must reiterate is not a fine film. Seriously. We'll be back. And we are back. Ingenues have been stalked. Um, oh my God! Monsters have been beaten to death. Monsters have been beaten to death <laughs> and thrown in the river. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been all sorts of uh, unpleasant things going on, <laughs> right? And uh, and so we have to find out, Jenna. Hey, what did you think of the Phantom of the Opera? That was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really liked uh, all of the camera tricks. There were so many neat camera things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the the. The, the blurry camera effect mm-hmm. was was great in some parts, just like really added to what was going on. Um, and all of the color stuff, that was neat. Yeah, it's really fun to see one of these restorations that really goes for restoring the color in the tinting and actually yeah. doing it well. Sometimes, sometimes it's done kind of sloppily and it doesn't look right, but... Uh, Oh my god, yeah. that masquerade. That masquerade. Oh my god. It, it, <laughs> there were so many me, greens and reds. I was like, it's a Christmas ball. Yeah. Yeah, that whole masquerade and the um that that was all two strip te- technicolor, very early technicolor, so that was live in camera color so you could actually see what the actual color of the set was. That oh. enormous set. Yes, dear listeners, that was all a set. The theater was a set they constructed in Soundstage 28 at Universal Studios. It's, it was enormous. It's ridiculous. It uh, <laughs> Like full-on concrete and steel girders because they knew they had to support hundreds of people and occasional horses. Um, yeah, right? What the hell? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes you need to support a horse. That, that set um, was for a very long time the longest still standing set in Hollywood. Very long time, meaning until 2014. Oh, wow. When the soundstage was torn down. 
Um, it, that set can be seen, uh, parts of the set can be seen in Dracula, which we just watched. Um, it's in it's in uh, Hitchcock's Torn Curtain, a bunch of other movies, including the 2011 Muppets movie. Yay! Huh! Yeah. Yeah. Huh. They, they used it whenever they could. But That's just, just... Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it's uh, and the yeah, the use of color is really remarkable. Yeah. I mean, the way that they have different tinted film stock for different scenes to mm-hmm. kind of set a mood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it wasn't film stock; it was all post tinted. Sorry, I mean, post tinted. They were tinting the actual prints, um, but there were actually three different actual color processes for certain scenes like in-camera color processes that were used for a few of the scenes. Um, like the two-strip Technicolor for the um, for the Masquerade. Uh, there was a uh, process called Prismacolor, which is really similar to two-strip Technicolor. It had two, two strips of film and all that. Um, it's It was used for the a Soldier's Night sequence, um, but that's all lost, unfortunately, so mm. we can't see that one anymore. And then uh, there was a process called Henshigo, which was used for the rooftop scene, where everything's in, like, this monotone blue, except for the Phantom's cloak. Yeah. And that was, like, a series of stencils and stamps that were used to just hand-color the cloak. Oh, my God. Yeah. Although, um, my guess is what we were seeing tonight in the Kino restoration of the 1929 print was um, probably just the regular black and white print with digitally re-enhanced color on that particular scene. Because I, th- I think I've seen approximations of what it would have looked like, and like the the, um, the outlines don't quite match the, uh, the, okay. the cloak. So I think what Kino probably did was just kind of restore it digitally to what it should have looked like. Or a close approximation. A close approximation yeah. that looked really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but by God, I love that scene with, with the oh, yeah. red cloak and the statue. And, uh, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so we talk about the 1929 print. Yes. Um, and we should talk about uh, sort of the... the the history of this film because it's originally a 1925 film right so uh in oh okay first of all the novel was written by uh gaston larue and uh, uh it was originally a serial published in a magazine or paper i can't remember which in 1909 1910 and um in about 1922 if i remember right carl lamley who was the president of universal pictures uh, went to Paris and met Gaston LaRue. And Gaston LaRue gave him a copy of the book, and Carl Lamley read it overnight, and he said, I love it. I'm going to buy it as a vehicle for Lon Chaney Sr., who was uh, a very popular actor at the time. He he was in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923 and was very popular in that, and so um, this was sort of his oeuvre. Lon Chaney was known for doing these spectacular pieces of character work buried under makeup. Okay. So very rarely did you actually see the man's real face. So um, sure enough, that is what transpired. They got uh, Lon Chaney, and uh, he designed all of his own makeup. Um, he's He was an old stage veteran and uh, did a lot of vaudeville. He was apparently really good at comedy, but rarely got to show it off in film. Because he got known for being the man of a thousand faces. So he designed his own uh, 
phantom makeup, which included like taping his nose up pretty much to his forehead. So he looked like he had no nose and he glued his ears back and he had these really painful teeth that he put the in. The mouth was the part that got yeah. me the most. Cause, cause I was like, wow, that's, yeah. How do you even like move your mouth like that? Mm -hmm. And then he did the, the reed scene where he went under, yeah. under the, I'm like, that's really oh, he durable. Really did get his mouth around that. Uh huh. Like I was like, huh? Okay, that's actually possible. And then he just comes up, and like it's all still there. Like it's, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and like uh, you know, he had like pros. He built like his own prosthetics out of uh, over his cheekbones with cotton and, you know, whatever he had on hand. Because I mean, um. Stage makeup had been going on for a long time, but not the really elaborate stuff that was developed later for film that had sure. really, you know, great qualities for molding something that looks good in close-up. But, uh, yeah, he, he was just a master at this stuff. And nice. so um, the studio actually did a really good job of keeping that makeup design secret. <laughs> so when uh, people saw it in the theater, it was first time they ever saw it and there there's of course legend that you know people fainted when they first saw it it was so horrible wow um there's also a legend that um the reaction of um god what was her name mary philbin the the actress yeah um that that was her actual reaction to the makeup when she pulls the mask because yeah. she had never seen it before um, there's a story about um, Lon Chaney, after he first tried on the makeup in his dressing room, he called in one of the cameramen. And the cameraman comes into his dressing room, and he just turns around, you know, unawares, and, and the cameraman just falls on his ass. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. And um, I can't remember what the words exchanged were supposed to be, but, uh, like, the, the cameraman cameraman you know said something jesus you really scared me and uh Lanchini said you told me everything i need to know <laughs> Aww, i like that yeah story. i like that one too so um let's see so the history of this the print itself when they made it so it was made in 1925 and um the first try at this you know, film showing this movie to the audience uh, didn't go really well. Um, the the director they first hired, a man named Rupert Julian, was kind of an asshole, and uh, he didn't get along with Lon Chaney and or most of the other actors, uh, for that matter. And like the first try at the the first cut didn't go well. So when they showed it to the audience, it kind of went meh. And so the studio brought it back. And they brought in another director, a gentleman named Edward Sedgwick, who did a bunch of refilming, sometimes even with different actors, and um, <laughs> kind of turned it into a romantic comedy. Huh. And then they showed huh. that a little later in 1925, and it got booed off the screen. So Universal brought it back. Um, they recut it. They took away most of the Sedgwick uh, uh, material they did keep the ending so the ending with like the river and the people and all that that was from the Sedgwick version and then they reinstated a bunch of the Rupert Julian footage and then they released that in 1925 uh, September of 1925 there was a 
full score by Eugene Conti. There was a full pipe organ installed in one of the premier theaters so that they Ooh. could show it. There was all this hullabaloo and it went off very well. So they made lots of money for Universal. And finally popular. managed to pay off that set. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God. What, why would you try that? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So that was a 1925 version. So in 1929, when sound is starting to be implemented into theaters, and that was a new hotness, um, Universal did yet another cut of the movie, and they trimmed it down a little bit. They put in new footage. They had um, new actors come in and do some different parts. Like, um, if, you'll, if you're really keen-eyed, you will notice in the opening credits of the cut that we just saw there was mm -hmm. a role for carlotta and carlotta's mother yeah and carlotta's and mother was carlotta in the 1925 version that was footage oh. from the 1925 version that they didn't they couldn't figure out how to plan around <laughs> so oh they just called called her carlotta's mother instead of carlotta in that scene okay <laughs> and then had a different actress for carlotta who came in and sang and um that was a sound piece so oh. that that scene with the new carlotta that goes on forever um and we were watching it silent well mm. that was uh, i think a sound piece at one point with synced sound a very early example of sync sound most of the sound that got laid over that print was just uh music like like we heard yeah uh but the occasional uh sound effect the occasional uh piece of dialogue uh just whatever they could just shoehorn in there to appeal to the new crowd for sound pictures. so is that sound lost because you know it wasn't that, in the kino version yes that sound is apparently lost although when i was reading about the kino version today i got confused because it's like i don't remember there being sound in, in that one but maybe i was wrong but um when i was reading about the kino version is that 1929 print is also lost like completely huh. so what the oh. kino version is um what happened is there was like another version of the sound of the of the sound version that was made just for silent theaters and it sat in the eastman kodak house in storage until the 1950s and somebody struck a new print off of that and was in very good shape so that is mostly okay. what we know as phantom of the opera today because that was the best print anybody had of it um now there's wow. the 1925 version that is included as an extra on the kino versions of the dvd and now blu-ray there's now a beautiful blu-ray out um what the 1925 version is that you can see today is it is um all that was left of that one was like 16 millimeter prints that were struck for home use and somebody found one of those and oh, they, wow. they restored that best as they could with what they had huh. and you could even see in the print we watched today in the 1929 version when uh uh christine dia gets put in that amazing bedroom yeah and it there are points in the print where it's like wow this looks really shitty and it's all scratchy yeah and crap and blurry uh, that was probably from the 16 mil restored from the 16 millimeter print because that was the only copy yeah. of that 
So yeah. Wow. The, that bed they put Christine Daae, by the way, was also in Sunset Boulevard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Things are reused all over the place. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yeah, yeah. It's although it's there's crazy. a certain. I, I got to say that having it be in Sunset Boulevard, given the character, mm-hmm. makes sense. Oh you yeah. Feel like Gloria Swanson's character. It, it's not like her bed is similar to the bed that was in Phantom of the Opera. She's like, no, no, no. I want the Phantom of the Opera bed to sleep in. Yes. Thank yes. you very much. Um, <laughs> and in a way, it's kind of thematically relevant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she has there this young that. man trapped under her spell. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think this the story of Phantom of the Opera, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I think mm-hmm. one of the challenges of it always has been to me that they, there is this goal to make the Phantom sympathetic, but he's kind of this murdering stalker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, it's when we, when you talk about the musical, uh, oh. it's, it's one of the things that drives me nuts about the musical. It's just like, why do I want, I mean, Raul's kind of a whiny, boring mm-hmm. character. And I mean, he's written that way. It's like, because clearly there's this attempt to make you go, well, I, I hope Christine kind of maybe, I, I don't know. There's, there seems to be this, this goal that you'll think Christine should end up with the Phantom, except, you know, he's kind of a murdering stalker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't feel like that is better um, <laughs> than Raul. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that's that. But anyway, the musical. Let's... let's <laughs> I, a, let me just say that I really appreciate in this version that... Christine having none of that. Yeah. Like, like yeah, she's, she's like, at the in the first scene, she's like, "Oh, my mentor," and then, and then when he starts to try to take her away, she's like, "No, <laughs> no, right? This is no, this is bad. I don't like this. I've got a bad feeling about this." Oh, right? hypnosis. And then he hypnotizes her and puts her on a horse. Yeah. So and then, yeah. And then she wakes up. She's like, "No." <laughs> yeah. No, she, at no point is she game for any of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because he's kind of creepy, and it's yeah. not what he looks like. No, I mean, no, it, it really isn't. It, it, like, although no, that she, is, I mean, he's pretty hideous, yeah, he but is, he's, he's scary. But but yeah. really, it's it's that, and it's not. They did the film does a nice job of the face reflects the character yeah. of of the individual. In yeah. that the Phantom himself, yes, he talks about how oh I'm twisted and and ugly, and you can never love me. It's like yeah. It's the fact that you're also a stalker, a stalker and a twisted (laughs) and ugly human being that makes makes her uninterested in him as opposed to. Why does he even have that box of the scorpion and the grasshopper? I want to know. Well, Um, because (laughs) if I had an underground cellar layer, (laughs) I would have a box with a scorpion and a grasshopper. Why wouldn't they just be two lovers rather than like. Why did he set it up for that? I mean, did he know that situation? Why does he have a horse down there? Well, yeah, they're they're. Yeah, layers. okay, I can't. I really can't explain the horse. I can explain why the ornate have, lovers because I would okay. do that. Okay, here's, okay. Here's a here. I, I, all of those other things. And here's here's the question that I asked myself: Why does he have two breathing tubes by the door? <laughs> One's what? for traveling. What yeah. I, is the other one for Christine, just in case? <laughs> yeah, I don't you know. You gotta have a backup. Come um, on. So anyway, the the musical, um, <laughs> the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, is, is oh, incredibly popular. Uh, I hate it. I mean, I really 
really hate it. I think the music is insipid. Um, I think stagecraft is really amazing. I mean, yeah. I've watched the show and enjoyed the show in spite of the fact that I really can't stand the music. Yeah, I'm with. Um, I'm there with you. I, I I saw the stage play once, and the uh, the stagecraft is astonishing. And and the the it is the stagecraft is very much inspired by the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the. Yeah. The masquerade scene in the st- in the stage show you can just see was which has the worst music of the worst music by the way. <laughs> Good lord, that yeah, masquerade okay. song is oh god, it's atrocious. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not singing. I'm not singing. You're not singing, and I appreciate I'm not. that. I'm not. But, I have to hold back. But I have to say that as awful as I think the musical is, I think the movie version of the musical manages to be worse. <laughs> um, because they don't bother to cast real singers. Because, yeah, number one, they cast Gerard Butler as the Phantom, and he can't mm-hmm. sing. Nope. And he also, when he played the role, he was like 35, and the Phantom's older than yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So he looked too young. But the other thing they did, and Melissa and I saw this at the same time, but oh, you, weren't, you weren't sitting next to me. I was sitting this. next to Windy, which was but amazing. So they knew was, because I was also <laughs> sitting next to Windy. Yeah. And Windy and I were both not pleased. Yeah, we were but, all just cringing but just in a row. The, the thing that bugged me is they do the, these flash-forward scenes mm-hmm. throughout the entire thing because there's this whole thing about Raul having purchased something at an auction. And then he gets into a carriage, and the carriage is taking him someplace. And these scenes are all in black and white. And then and then the flashbacks to the Phantom of the Opera are in color. And the scenes that are the, that are the you know, modern-day Raul in the carriage in black and white are pointless. They don't <laughs> drive the narrative forward at all. And in right. fact, they stop the movie dead in its tracks every time. So every time they got to one of those scenes, I remember, and I was quiet, I allowed other people to enjoy the mu- movie, but every time that they got to one of those scenes, I would be pantomiming, what the fuck is this doing here? <laughs> every time, because it was so badly Jerry rigged into <laughs> wasn't it Joel Schumacher? Didn't Joel Shaw? Yes, Joel yes. fucking Schumacher. The man who put the nipples on Batman yeah. directed the Phantom of the yeah. Opera. He directed musical movie. Yeah, and, but, uh, it just. <clears throat> but, there, but we watched a much better movie. Yeah, yes. this movie was very good, but it, it's just kind of like I mean, there's a re- it's why I want people to understand. Don't go watch the musical. <laughs> No, no, and I know that I'm. There's gotta be. There's somebody that's listening to this that they're like, I love the music of Phantom oh, of the I, Opera. Well, we were all teenagers once, and, well, I, and that's pretty much it. Like it's all nostalgia for me. And I, yeah, and I, yeah. and I, I, it was a very popular musical. Mm-hmm. It ran for a very. Maybe it's still running. I, I don't know. Oh, I it, saw it. Uh, what was it, a year and a half ago? So it's still yeah. running. Yeah. People love that musical. They really do. And I, you know, it's and it, here's the thing. I love it. I don't think it's good, but I love it. So you, so you have that that yeah, sort of it's, like it's uh, kind a, of it's it's the nostalgia, it's yeah. the callback, it's the the memories I have associated with it, mm-hmm. doing theater and having everybody singing the songs to get like that. And so yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not good. They're not going to pretend it's good. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah, sure it's a lot of other people's like '80s movies. Like it's not good. 
I, I, that was my childhood. Wendy yeah. loves Xanadu. I love the apple. We all have things like that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's fair. That's it's but fair. I'm not going to try to convince anybody that Phantom of the, of the Opera musical is is uh, good music. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's 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 not good music, but I like it. <laughs> and the other thing that I I have to say that and and this is one of those things that is personal. The the soundtrack. The, the, the cast recording for the Phantom of the Opera, um, the two leads are awful. Yeah. I mean, Michael Crawford is terrible. And Sarah Brightman, I sorry if you love Sarah Brightman. No, she sucks. She's horrible. <laughs> the only reason the only reason she was cast in that show as the lead is because she was Andrew Lloyd Webber's wife. And now she has a career as a singer, and that is a tragedy, dear listeners. <laughs> they not watch Citizen Kane. It is it Ugh. is it is a, it is the saddest thing in the world to think that she watch Michael Michael Crawford is in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum mm-hmm. all right which is a fine entertaining funny film that I don't know if uh, Jenna's seen but may need to be on our list at some point but the point is he can't sing in that movie either <laughs> and years later years later he he ends up as the lead in Phantom of the Opera and I, I just I can't comprehend how it happened. And I went to see when I was uh, when I was in London in college. I went to see a production of Phantom of the Opera because I was like, I'm going to check this thing out. And and uh, they had the gentleman that the the show that I saw. They had the gentleman who replaced Michael Crawford in the mm-hmm. London production, uh, who was back for a short run. Mm-hmm. And they had some young lady who was playing Christine Daae. And they had and 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 the thing was, both of them were so much better. <laughs> than Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman that I almost understood why somebody might like this musical because even though I just still didn't like the music if somebody sang it like that at least I could appreciate that um, Gerard Butler though he really he made me appreciate Michael Crawford oh, gosh. so and I like Gerard Buff- Butler I mean I do can we I talk liked... about Lon Chaney Sr. Instead? okay let's talk okay. about Lon <laughs> I told you, this is why we watch the movies, so that somebody could have a rant about the musical. I'm surprised it wasn't me. (laughs) Well, maybe I'm not so surprised, but anyway. (laughs) I like Lon Chaney, though. Yeah, Lon Chaney's pretty fantastic. Yeah, Lon Chaney Sr., um, a wonderful performer. I mean, um, old vaudevillian. Uh, by the time he started acting in movies, he was already, you know, well-established on the stage. He was the owner of a theater company. Um, he started working in film in about 1912, and he very quickly established himself as this fantastic actor. And um, in between shows, he was just very quiet. He didn't do the Hollywood fame thing, but uh, he was very friendly to other actors. He um, helped a lot of people get established in the business. Um, you know, he he liked mentoring younger people like, like Boris Karloff. Um, Joan Crawford ran into him early in her career. Um, everybody just thought the world of him. Um, he was just this. Did he meet a tragic end? We've been talking a lot about actors no. who meet a tragic end. Well, he had throat cancer, no. and uh, well, probably because he smoked like every other actor. Yeah, because he smoked time. like a goddamn chimney. Yeah. Uh, at the time, they theorized that um, uh, during his last film, I can't remember the name of it. There was fake snow used that was ground gypsum, and they theorized that he got some sort of weird lung cancer horrible thing from the fake snow 
But really, it was just because he smoked like goddamn chimney. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, he, he, and he died shortly before Dracula was made. Because if, if you recall from the Dracula episode, it was... Uh, he was... Er, they originally wanted him to play Dracula. But he couldn't because he was dead. Yes. Bummer. Yeah. Now, Lon Chaney, it should and be not pointed. undead. But we, not the undead. reason we make it clear about Lon Chaney Sr. is because Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. was also a film actor. And he was also a universal monster, namely yeah. the Wolfman. He was the Wolfman. Oh, yeah. So yeah. He, I get it. he carried on the family business, yes. as it were, yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lon Chaney Jr. I, he has a sadness to him that I... Is Did he meet a tragic sad. end? can't remember. Well, I mean, Lon Chaney Sr. did. I mean, he had throat cancer. He yeah, didn't get throat, to, throat he didn't cancer get play, sucks. He didn't get to play Dracula, and then, of course, yeah. Yeah. then Bela Lugosi did, and then he had a horrible tragic end, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know. So that's, <laughs> you know, what goes around. But, uh, yeah, uh, he... Uh, I have not, you know, because I'm not nearly as well-versed in silent film as Melissa, <laughs> um, so I haven't seen a lot of Lon Chaney Sr. Um, and, I mean, I think the the role most people know him for is this one. Yeah. Probably Hunchback of Notre Dame as well. Yeah, which although, was two years prior, well, two years prior to the first version of this movie. Although the <laughs> more people know... The sound version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame with uh, Charles Lawton. With Charles Lawton, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, not the uh, Disney version of no. the Hunchback of Notre no. Dame. I know the Disney version, <laughs> which which yeah. is fine. Yeah, half of it's a great movie. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's actually very well said. Yeah, it it half is. Half of it is a great movie. Half, the well half done. that doesn't have the gargoyles in it is a really good movie. <laughs> And then there's all that, oh, we got to put in comedy for the kitties. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work. Anyway. Yeah. Back to uh, the Hunchback. Not the Hunchback. Um, the Phantom of the Opera. Is there anything else on your fabulous list of uh, trivia and interesting notes about this oh. film, Melissa, that I we have not yet arrived at? Well, let's see. I wanted to bring up uh, Rupert Julian, who is the asshole director that nobody liked. Um he was from New Zealand, and he uh, was famous in stage and screen in New Zealand and Australia for a while. And eventually he came over to the U.S. and he worked for Universal as an actor, uh, eventually playing Kaiser Wilhelm in a well-received movie that made a lot of money for Universal. And after that, he turned director. And what he really wanted to do was direct. Yeah, what he mm. really wanted to do was direct. And so he directed this and a couple other things, and uh, they decided they didn't like it very much in his career kind of fizzled so <laughs> but his dog is in the movie huh. yeah. <laughs> um also i wanted to bring up uh mary philbin uh, the the young lady who played christine did she meet a tragic end well, kind of. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. She, she, um, if I was going to rename the podcast, it would be Tragic Endings. Tragic Endings. <laughs> so, uh, Mary Philbin, uh, she, she grew up in this very strict family of, you know, this really strictly religious mother, and she was very sheltered. But she was friends with Carla Limley, who was the niece of Carl Limley, president of Universal Studios. Uh -huh. uh, they were, uh, so her family family was living on the East Coast um, and were, as was uh, Carla Lemley. Um, but uh, she was a fan of movies and she heard about a casting call for a, a new Eric von Stroheim 
movie and they were casting the lead actress from photographs being sent in. There was like a big contest to get cast in this movie. And so she sent in her photograph, uh, much to the consternation of her overbearing mother, and um, and got cast. And uh, her mother told her no until she realized that Carl and Lemley and her family were moving to California to be near Carl Lemley. <laughs> and, and so the... The both families relocated to California, but by the time they got there, Mary Philbin learned that um, she had been replaced uh, on the movie, but, you know, her appetite was whetted, and so through Carl Limley, uh, she met, um, oh crud, uh, I can't remember... I think it was Irving Thalberg. And, you know, through various other things, she eventually got cast in um, a movie called Blazing Trail. She eventually did work for Eric Stronheim, who we've actually already seen in a movie in Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. And uh, she eventually got cast in this. She wasn't much of an actress, but she was pretty, and uh, she was nice enough, so, you know, she did... She had a little bit of a career during the silent era, and then once sound hit, it just kind of went... And uh, one of the things that happened is one of the last movies she worked on, she fell in love with a guy who was working on set. And they were deeply in love, and they sent love letters to each other, but he was a Jew. <gasps> and she was Irish Catholic. Oh. And so her family wouldn't let them be together, and they broke it off. And, Aww. like... Years and years and years later, you know, it was learned that they both kept each other's love letters to each other and all that stuff. But, you know, after she faded from fame, she pretty much kind of hermited herself. She was, uh, you know, she went to church frequently and had her own little community around her, but she wasn't public anymore. And uh, she turned up in public like twice after her career faded. And once was for the uh, funeral of Rudolph Valentino. Mm. And once was for the debut of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical of Phantom of the Opera. Huh. Huh. <laughs> so, so the the original Christine Daae was in at the premiere of the Andrew Lloyd Webber debacle. Interesting. Yeah. And then she disappeared. And then she disappeared again. Yeah, uh, she passed away in 1993. All right. Well, okay. Yeah, that's not bad. Good news. Okay. Yeah. So I think uh, we've gotten through a lot. Uh, including a long rant about the musical. Yes. And I think that's, that's probably where we should end it. So, Jenna, final thoughts. Oh, um, I like all of the uh, the, the hell tones, the, the <laughs> angels and demons yeah. and, and all of that throughout yeah. the film. Like, that's the, because there's the angels on the roof and the angels mm -hmm. in the, the, the show and the... And he sings like an angel. He sounds like an angel. He has the voice of an angel. And they're doing um, Faust. But yeah, yeah and yeah. they're doing Faust. But then he he looks, he's evil. He looks evil, and he's in the 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 the, the underground. And mm -hmm. then you know you, you you sink even lower, and it's it's super hot, and there's it's gonna burn the place. Out. Like there's all sorts of um, just uh, hell and and heaven and and all of that like thematically throughout it which i think is fantastic when he talks about how he she's gonna save him with his love i'm like well i don't understand how that works well he didn't but i either. see how it plays into the theme he didn't understand mm -hmm. either which is well, kind yeah. of part of the point yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah melissa final thoughts 
I love the Mask of Red Death outfit, man. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I want to. I want to oh, yeah. show up at Convergence some year dressed as that. There's a reason okay. they just uh-huh. took they just took that outfit and put it on the stage for for the musical. Yeah. So like they're just like, well, we're not gonna be able to do this better. Let's just copy that. Yeah. yeah. And isn't that just a dazzling point of the movie when mm. the, that red shows up? It's like, oh, that's yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Th- yeah. That. The masquerade scene and the uh, rooftop scene right after it. That's my jam. (laughs) That's your jam. (laughs) All right. So uh, my final thought, um, as always, I'm going to talk about the next movie we're going to watch. We're going to watch La Belle et la Bête, which we feel is a fine follow up to to this particular film. So we hope you'll check in on us on that one. Uh, We also hope you enjoyed if you actually, I mean, I I hope if you've listened this far, you actually watched the goddamn movie. (laughs) Um, If not, go watch the goddamn movie. Just just do us that favor. Um, I do have to say, the thing I forgot to mention earlier is um, it is really clear we've watched We've watched The Abominable Dr. Fibes, mm-hmm. and it's very, very clear the influence that Phantom of the Opera yes. had on The Abominable <laughs> oh, Dr. Yeah. Fibes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. So uh, that is my final thought. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we will catch you next time for La Belle et la Bête. We hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education. Dee, dee.